This is Fordham Conversations. I'm Nora Flaherty. For most Americans, human rights are not a daily concern. Although most of us have our opinions about Abu Ghraib or Guantanamo, they tend to be based on what we see in the media, and for most of us, they seem rather distant. But what if we were to go and see what was going on in some of the many places in the world where human rights are a serious question? And what if we were to report back? That's the idea behind the Joseph R. Crowley Program in International Human Rights. In that Fordham Law School program, students and faculty conduct a fact-finding mission on a different human rights issue every year. In the past, they've looked at the criminal justice system in Mexico and women's inheritance rights in Ghana, among other things. In 2005, participants traveled to Romania to look at access to education among the Romani people there. They're putting together their report and recommendations on that now. Later today on Fordham Conversations, we'll hear a report on one group of American kids in school, homeless kids. But first, Tracy Higgins is a professor at Fordham Law School, and she's a faculty director of the Crowley Program. She joins me today in the studio to talk about the Crowley mission to Romania. Tracy Higgins, welcome. Thank you. So tell me about the mission to Romania. In the Romania mission, we were looking at the rights of Roma children to education. The project was focused on problems of school segregation, and we found that it took many different forms um, in various parts of Romania. Um, And we visited schools, we talked with students, teachers, school administrators, as well as government officials, provincial officials, as well as people in the capital. And what did you find there? Well, we found that it's a complicated problem. I mean, it's a school segregation and discrimination in education is something that I think many Americans are familiar with. And we know it's a something of an intractable problem that we've struggled with over the years. And we found similar kinds of issues in Romania. In national law, formal school segregation, as we had in the American South in the early part of last century, is outlawed. So it no longer exists in Romania. But what we did find was that there is a fair amount of de facto segregation. So that in a number of regions, there are schools that are identifiable as either entirely Roma or or mostly Roma, and other schools where ethnic Romanians attend. And there's a considerable discrepancy often in the facilities and the level of teaching available at the different schools. Tell me about the trip itself. What did you do there? Well, when we arrived in in Bucharest, we split into three teams, and I was off with one of the teams with um, a couple of students and an interpreter. And essentially what we did was to visit um, schools. We would drop in. um, Some we had prearranged appointments, and some we simply dropped in. And um, we tried to assess the situation. Uh, Remember that in 2005, Romania was working hard at meeting the criteria for accession to the European Union. And so there was a lot of attention on the issue of discrimination against the Roma. They had had a lot of visitors. They were very sensitive to the question. So often, if the visit had been prearranged at a school, they were ready for us, in a sense. And they were very keen on showing us that there was not, in fact, segregation going on. But when we were able to talk candidly with students, and particularly when we were able to talk candidly with Roma parents, we found that that really wasn't the case, that some of the day-to-day segregation had been sort of masked over because of our visit and that we weren't maybe getting the full story. So we went into communities and we met in a kind of ad hoc way with parents who told us about 
their concerns about education for their kids, their attempts to enroll their children in schools that were outside of their neighborhood school um, that would have given them a higher level of education. Um, Parents told us about testing that they thought unfairly placed their kids in remedial programs, which could also be a kind of cover for segregated schools. We also talked with ethnic Romanian parents who expressed concern about having their kids go to school with the Roma. I mean, one thing that we found is that there was a really very palpable feeling of hostility towards the Roma, and it wasn't there wasn't a particular taboo on expressing that. So when you were having conversations with ethnic Romanians, they were very quick to say that Roma kids were disruptive, they were a bad influence, they were dirty, they they didn't want their children in any way associated with Roma kids, didn't want them making friends with Roma kids, high school didn't certainly didn't want them dating Roma kids. And that was not a sentiment that they made any effort to hide whatsoever, which was a sign, you know, of the sort of surface level of the integration, I think, that there was still that much hostility that, that was expressed by their parents. And then schools, you know, schools want to accommodate the demands of the Romanian parents. And they know that the power of the school and the level of resources of the school depends on maintaining the level of enrollment of ethnic Romanians as opposed to Roma kids. Um, and that's because the schools are funded through the tax base of the parents? Yeah, the, the tax base of the parents. And there was a shift after the revolution in the early 1990s. There's a shift away from national funding towards local funding and local control. Now, in some ways, that's a good idea. Um, we like local control of schools as well. Parents want to have input about what the schools do and what the curriculum is like, et cetera. But what it means practically is that Roma schools are located in Roma communities that are exceedingly poor, and the tax base simply can't support the school. Um, The teacher's salaries are paid by the national government, but other things, the school facilities and textbooks and all the other things that go into making a good school are paid for by local taxes, and they're simply not enough to sustain quality across the board. It might be useful here to talk a little about uh, who the Roma are in Romania and sort of their history and where they fit in in the society there. Right. Um, The Roma are familiarly known to Americans maybe as gypsies, although that's regarded as a pejorative term and one that we don't use in our report. Um, But they're the largest stateless ethnic group in Europe, and uh, there are Roma populations throughout Europe. Romania has the largest Roma population. Many of the Roma speak their own language, Romani, and different dialects of it are present in Romania and throughout Europe. So it's wrong to characterize them as homogenous. They're a very diverse group themselves, but they share this history of discrimination over hundreds of years. They were enslaved for hundreds of years, and um, in that way, there are significant parallels between the uh, status of the Roma and the status of African in history of African Americans. Americans in the United States. And they originally emigrated from South Asia? 
They did, yes. Um, that's the thought. I mean, the, the history is not well documented, and it's an oral history and tradition. But but yes, that's the view of scholars that, that the rumor originated in South Asia. Now, when you say gypsies, basically that conjures up a whole host of images in, in my mind, and I imagine the minds of many of the listeners. Mm-hmm. What are some of the stereotypes about the Roma in, in Romania and Europe, and how do those affect their ability to get a quality education? Well, the Roma traditionally, some Roma anyway, were travelers, what we think of as gypsies, the caravan, um, those kinds of images that we might associate them, which are, to a large degree, stereotypes, particularly of the modern Roma populations, but were the traveling aspect of their lifestyle, their itinerant lifestyle, was true of many Roma populations. And so there was a lot of hostility from local communities when a group of Roma would come into town and and locate nearby and tax the resources of the local community. They were regarded as thieves, a group to be feared, or at least, if not feared, at least um, avoided by the local population. And especially the children were seen as simply a nuisance, um, not at all a part of the community, not invested in the community. Many of them today are migrant workers and agricultural workers. And so while they might return to the same location seasonally, they don't have the same kind of roots within the community, are not fully integrated into the the local political community in the way that ethnic Romanians are. So would you see parallels with uh, migrant workers in the U.S. then? Um, yes, yes. I think that that, that Oh, is the case. I mean, often migrant workers in the U.S. are also undocumented workers, which is not true of the Roma in Romania. They're fully citizens of Romania, although they um, often lack the the necessary documentation in order to, for example, enroll their kids in in local schools. But they are um, they are citizens of the state. Why did you choose to do this mission in two thousand five among the Romani? We, we thought it was an interesting time to visit because of the anticipation of accession to the EU. So there was a lot of attention on the Roma issue, but it was a particularly good time to highlight the issue of education. We also thought that since we're an American group, we didn't have quite the same stake in the the politics of the EU process. And so we are, in that sense, an outsider, certainly to Romania, obviously, but to Europe as well. Uh, so that gave us a particular perspective on the question. So you do say in your report that Romani children don't have equal access to education. How does that play out on an everyday level in Romania? In many cases, it's clear once you walk into the school, the actual school facilities are are far from equal. You'll have a lovely, well-appointed, well-staffed school that is 80% ethnic Romanian or 90% ethnic Romanian. And then two kilometers away, you'll have a sort of ramshackle, unheated, single-room classroom with broken desks and battered books and teachers who are quite unhappy, obviously, at being posted in in that particular school. 
we encountered such disparities in that kind of context. It was clear that the Roma kids were being marginalized. In other situations, it's less obvious. Um, when you walk into a school and the principal of the school tells you, oh, we have you know, 40% Roma or 50% Roma in this school, there's no discrimination going on, you have to look a little more carefully. Sometimes that, that may well be the case, that the, that the school district has done quite a good job at integrating the Roma kids. But sometimes when we looked more closely at the classroom structure, we would find segregation among the classrooms, a kind of tracking of students in classrooms A, B, and C, and D, and the proportion of Roma kids in those different classrooms was very different. So we didn't have the ability to assess, for example, the quality of instruction that grade four classroom A was getting as opposed to grade four classroom D was getting. But it was clear to us that in many schools that the Roma population was not evenly spread across those four classrooms and that that wasn't an accident. Now, that could be a, a kind of subtle policy on the part of schools, or it could happen for other reasons. It could happen because the Romanian parents put pressure on the schools to assign their kids to the non-Roma classrooms. It could be because in many school districts, the classrooms are formed as the parents register their kids. And so the kids who are late to register will be in classroom D. Often the Roma parents are late to register, and that may be because there's not sufficient outreach and education of the Roma parents about the requirement to register their kids every year. It could be because they're migrant workers and don't return to the community until later and are not able to meet the deadline. Um, so there, it, it's a complex set of factors that may contribute to that. Not all of it is necessarily hostility on the part of the school administrators towards Roma kids. But the schools and, and Romania still has an obligation to take steps to overcome those problems. So it's still the responsibility of the school district or the state to change the policy of registration, sort of a first-come, first-served policy, change that policy so it doesn't have the effect of segregating the Roma kids into one one or two classrooms. You're listening to Fordham Conversations on WFUV 90.7 and WFUV.org. I'm Nora Flaherty. We're talking this morning with Tracy Higgins from the Crowley Program in International Human Rights at Fordham Law School. In 2005, Crowley students traveled to Romania to look at educational discrimination against the Romani ethnic group there. In a few minutes, we'll hear about a group in the U.S. for whom education can also be a daily struggle. But first, let's return to our conversation with Tracy Higgins. How would these children's lives be different if they did have access to education? Well, um, the the level of poverty among the Roma is just tremendous. And it's a problem throughout Romania. It's not unique to the Roma populations. There's a lot of rural poverty in Romania, period. And this we heard over and over again from Romanians, from the non-Roma, that, look, we have a lot of problems here. Why is everybody focused on the Roma? But the reality is that it's just much more acute in the Roma population. One of the key factors in trying to lift 
families out of poverty is education. And a startling number of Roma kids, maybe a quarter of Roma kids, get no education whatsoever. And then a very high percentage of them drop out in primary school, and only a very tiny percentage graduate from secondary school or go on to university. So clearly, if they are more fully integrated in the system, if they get the resources that they need and the support that they need in order to stay in school, if Roma parents are educated and encouraged to keep their kids in school, it's going to be easier to change the economic status so that you don't have generation after generation remaining in this economically marginalized position. And, you know, part of it, part of it is a problem with a lack of support of education within the Roma households. So, for example, one teacher that I spoke with who was quite dedicated to trying to improve the education of Roma kids, said that um, she wasn't able to allow the Roma children to take their textbooks home because the siblings might use the textbooks um, to tear out the pages and wrap goods that are then sold in the marketplace, which is entirely understandable, right? You maintain the household economy in whatever way you can. And if you're trying to put food on the table for the evening meal, who can blame a parent for not prioritizing education? But it's that kind of problem that really needs to be addressed somehow to help to give the families the support that is necessary to allow the kids to remain in school. What, if anything, is the government doing to make sure that Romani kids have equal access? Um, Well, it has issued directives. It's created institutions on the national level to try to guarantee non-discrimination in education. And Romania actually does quite a good job in educating kids generally. The level of literacy is quite high. And so the problem really is one of attacking the discrimination questions. So in working towards joining the European Union, Romania took quite a few steps to try to establish a kind of legal framework to address the problem or an institutional framework to address the problem. The issue, though, is whether that was more window dressing than than real change. Because if you've got widespread hostility towards this minority population, then it's not simply a matter of providing legal guarantees. There has to be a provision of resources and uh, for education of the minority group, but there also has to be a kind of education of the majority population, right, dealing with that hostility and discriminatory attitude towards the Roma. And that's something that Romania still needs to pay more attention to, in our view. Why is this a human rights issue? Um, well, it, it's true that that we often think of, as in your introduction, Abu Ghraib, for example, issues like torture or illegal detention as the core human rights issues. But in fact, there's a, a whole set of international legal protections of these positive rights, economic, social, and cultural rights. 
And these are fully equally protected in international human rights law. Now, evaluating what constitutes a violation of, say, the right to health care or the right to education is more complicated, maybe, than evaluating whether someone has been illegally detained or tortured. And so one of the things that we thought was interesting about looking at the right to education or these, these social and cultural rights more broadly is how do you measure them? I mean, how do you evaluate whether they're, um, a state has violated them or not? It's a more complicated, quantitative process than um, looking at some of these more traditional civil and political rights. But the status of positive rights, economic, social, and cultural rights, in international human rights law is fully equal to civil and political rights that Americans might be more familiar with. What recommendations are you making in this report, and do you think there's any likelihood that they're actually going to be enacted? Uh, um, well, our our recommendations are key to some of the specific problems that I've talked about, um, focusing on affirmative programs to integrate the Roma um, into the school system and to focus on issues of classroom segregation as opposed to school-by-school segregation. We've suggested that the government collect more specific statistics about how Roma kids are allocated through the system because, for example, district-wide statistics don't tell us anything about actual classroom segregation or even school-by-school segregation. So one of the problems is a lack of adequate reporting to the government. We've suggested that the state strengthen the laws regarding anti-discrimination so that they can be more robustly enforced, both by the government itself and also by non-governmental organizations or human rights groups, Roma rights groups um, within Romania, that the penalties for discrimination need to be strengthened as well. And we've also suggested that more resources be devoted to outreach to Roma communities to help to deal with some of the problems in those communities grappling with issues of poverty and also trying to maintain kids in school, dealing with early marriage, for example, and other kinds of cultural phenomena that sometimes um, interfere with education of, of Roma kids. Why do people need to know about this? And also, why should, why should people care? One of the most effective ways for international human rights to be enforced is political pressure. And in very many cases, not obvious ways that um, international human rights law can be enforced by courts in the conventional sense. And so non-governmental organizations, educational institutions like the Crowley Program at Fordham, Our role is really to try to bring attention to these problems so that political pressure can be brought to bear. Is it always successful? The better question is probably, is it ever successful? But it's a cumulative process, right? So that it's nothing's going to change if people forget about the issue. And one fear is that now that Romania has, as of January 2007, now that Romania has joined the European Union, that attention will now be diverted elsewhere, that in the buildup to that 
joining of the the EU, there was a lot of attention on the Roma issue, and now our concern is that it may be forgotten. And we hope that our project and our report may contribute to some continued attention, education of Americans on the problem. Well, Tracy Higgins, thank you so much. Thank you. That was Tracy Higgins. She's a professor at Fordham's Law School and faculty director of the law school's Joseph R. Crowley Program in International Human Rights. This is Fordham Conversations on WFUV 90.7 and WFUV.org. I'm Nora Flaherty. Ahead this morning on Cityscape, essays for Earth Day. Cityscape with George Bodarkey this morning at 7.30 on WFUV. We heard from Tracy Higgins that for Roma children in Romania, it can be difficult to get to school and hard to get an education once there. Homeless kids in the U.S. face an overlapping but distinct set of challenges. About 40% of the estimated 3.5 million homeless people living in the U.S. are children. More from producers Sarah Elzis and Sarah Kramer. Do you know my name? No, it's not. <laughs> Herbert R. Bennett Jr. Don't ever call me Herbert. J.R. Bennett is sitting at the end of a table in a conference room at the Coalition for the Homeless in downtown Manhattan. He and the other students in the room are part of the coalition's youth advocacy group. They meet weekly to work on raising awareness about homelessness. They feel comfortable here talking about being homeless, something they can't do with just anyone. Today's topic is going to be education while being in the shelter system. Today, J.R., the founder of the group, is leading a conversation about school. He's wearing a black button-down shirt and has his questions written out on a yellow pad in front of him. First day of high school, my mom went to my guidance counselor, so that was fun. (laughs) Deandra K. Atkinson is 16. And I had a lecture about how even though I'm homeless, I can still do great and I can get everything done, and I didn't. So they would say that, oh, you could have done it if you really wanted to. And I'm like, how? Homeless students across the country have to deal with more than the usual difficulty of growing up in poverty. Along with the stress and instability of moves from shelter to shelter, they often have to negotiate long commutes. Frequent moves also make it difficult to keep school records straight, and even basic things like supplies and uniforms are hard to come by. And then there are the relationships with teachers and the other students. How exactly were y'all treated by, like, people that knew that you were homeless? They talk about it constantly. That's 14-year-old Von Bathia. They make fun of us, saying that we can't afford anything, we can't afford housing, can't afford clothes and stuff. They used to get in my face. They'd be telling me, oh, you ugly, you dirty, you this and that. Isis is 13. She's Vaughn's sister. They just moved out of the shelter system into an apartment in the Bronx. They were homeless for more than two years. When I was homeless, my attitude was really on the tip of aggravated. Homeless students are caught in a bind. Ideally, a teacher would know their situation and would provide extra time for them to complete projects if they miss school. But at the same time, the kids don't really want anyone to know. Let's face it, kids are cruel to other kids. Agnes Stevens is a retired teacher in Los Angeles. She founded School on Wheels 11 years ago, a nonprofit that provides educational assistance to homeless students through tutoring and other services. I've seen it work greatly when a teacher is aware of children coming from a shelter, but I've seen it far too often where nobody knows and there is that mistrust on all sides. Some of the teachers want to, like, you know, because of the fact that you're homeless, it's like, we understand your situation, and it's like, 
well, I'm no different than the other kids in the <laughs> class. I guess I feel like it's kind of like talking down to me as if, you know, it's okay, you're homeless, and it shouldn't be that way. It's like, we are going through something different, but other kids in the class, like, feed off of that. Like, why is he getting an extension, you know? Is it because he's homeless? I had to go to different schools to finally finish the fifth grade. That's Vaughn again. I tried to finish fifth grade in one school year. We was forced to move to another shelter. Then I tried again, and I was almost there. It was almost June, then we had to move again. According to the McKinney-Vento Act, a federal law protecting the rights of homeless students, these kids are allowed to stay in their school of origin, where they lived before becoming homeless. School districts are obligated to help them do that, but not everyone is informed of this right. If they do decide to stay, their schools can be far away from their shelter, and they have trouble making it to school on time, or making it at all and they're exhausted with negotiating the system. A lot of times, like, I know I slept during school. That was my time to sleep. You over here, like, slouching in the table and everything, they be like, what's wrong with you, Isis? And then you say, oh, I didn't sleep last night. I think for a teacher, it's kind of frustrating because they maybe don't come in with their work or they're out a lot of times and that kind of thing. Agnes says that in Los Angeles, public schools are already overburdened, as are most urban school systems in the U.S., Add in homeless students, there are 800 in downtown Skid Row alone. It's a lot to deal with for overworked teachers. The classroom teacher really, when our tutors get a hold of them, they really want to help. I think it's just the conflict and the frustration of people not knowing where people are coming from. Since I've gotten into high school, I've really begun to like school a lot because I felt comfortable there. Like, I dread going to my shelter. JR lives with his father and was first homeless when he was four. In 2002, he became homeless again at the end of his first year of high school. I feel like my only escape out of the shelter system right now is college. Most of the colleges I applied to was out of New York State. I don't want to be in New York City anymore. I don't know, just too many bad memories. I just want to leave it. In New York, this is Sarah Elzis. This piece was produced with Sarah Kramer. This is WFUV. If you'd like to learn more about the Joseph R. Crowley Program and International Human Rights, go to their website, crowleyprogram.org. You can also hear a show that I did about the Crowley Program's mission to Kenya or any other Fordham Conversations you'd like to hear in the Fordham Conversations archive at wfuv.org. Fordham Conversations is also now available as a podcast. If you're interested in subscribing or you're just looking for some more information, click on podcast at wfuv.org. From WFUV 90.7 and wfuv.org, this has been Fordham Conversations. I'm Nora Flaherty. Cityscape is next. Thanks for listening and have a great weekend.